Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. Political and business leaders from 21 economies are gathering to discuss how to build a more interconnected, innovative, and inclusive APEC region. Also attending the event is Chinese President Xi Jinping, who delivered a written speech at the CEO summit and who earlier met with his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden. What are the main takeaways so far of this year's APEC summit? What were the highlights of President Xi's speech to the CEOs? And could we soon see a positive transformation of China-U.S. ties? To discuss these issues and more, I'm happy to be joined by Professor Joan Gum from the University of International Business and Economics, and Dr. Saeed Mahmoud Ali, Associate Fellow at the Institute of China Studies at the University of Malaya, and Professor Peter Kuznick from American. American University. Welcome to Dialogue. Well, another year for the APEC meetings. Uh, John, I will start with you. Uh, so, after following these uh, meetings and you know different sessions, so what's your takeaway from this event? Well, I think the fact that the two presidents、uh, meet is already a, a significant event in itself. I think、yes. um, it has been quite a while since they talked last time in Bali, Indonesia. Uh, and I think、uh, you know this time、um, the the conversation or the the exchange、uh, resumes,、uh, and、uh, there are some concrete uh,、um, outcomes coming out of this meeting. I think、uh, you know the the agreement on dealing with fentanyl is a very big deal for the American people. You know, reportedly、uh, over. Twenty thousand people die from that every year,、uh, and I think、uh, this is one thing that China contributes immensely、uh, to American national interest.、Uh, and also, I think what's very significant is the,、um, the exchanges and dialogue、uh, channels between the military、uh, to, to military to military dialogue.、Uh, that, that's also, I think, a very significant development. So I think、um, you know, unlike. Uh, Uh, what is being portrayed in the U.S. media,、uh, I think there are some concrete positive、um, uh, outcomes coming out of the meeting, and I think at least、uh, the two countries' bilateral relationship、uh, is indeed being stabilized. At least、um, uh, whether it will、uh, move in a positive direction in a significant way,、uh, that ways to be seen. But I, at least I think it's a it's a first step in that direction. So I'm、uh, cautiously optimistic about、uh, the future between the two countries.、Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Ali.、Uh, You know, as、uh, we said earlier, are we going to see a more interconnected, more in- inclusive APEC region here? Well,、uh, I believe a diplomatic floor seems to have been placed underneath the U.S. proclaimed strategic competition with China,、uh, which offers some hope that cooperation will moderate extreme premises tendencies threatening trans-Pacific peace and stability. Now, that is essential to whatever. Uh, one might sort of hope to achieve subsequently, but the first step, as Dr. Gong said, has been leaders have authorized the new framework. The hard work of building on it will begin now. Okay, the hard work ahead.、Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered a written speech at the APEC CEO summit. Said openness and inclusiveness are defining features of Asia Pacific cooperation. He said the region's development has been achieved not through provoking antagonism and confrontation. He also said development for all is the overarching goal of Asia-Pacific cooperation, and seeking common ground while shelving differences is the best practice. President Xi said development is only possible with cooperation, and decoupling and supply chain disruptions are not in anyone's interests. 
He also said the APEC Putrajaya vision lays out its vision for an Asia-Pacific community by 2040. Uh, well, uh, Peter, and uh, obviously, I mean, to be fair, um, this summit uh, between the Chinese leader and his U.S. counterpart, Joe Biden, is the focus, uh, has been the focus, I would say, the gist of the APEC summit there. Uh, because as uh, you know, I think as understood, you know, without a peace and stability, uh, there's little cooperation and uh, it's impossible to do more trade and investment. Uh, so returning to this uh, topic, uh, uh, Peter, what, what's your take, uh, you know, of the meeting between the two leaders, uh, you know, the first, second time in the year? Uh, it's interesting that in the United States, there's been almost no discussion about the APEC sub-meeting and all the discussion has been focused on the meeting between President Biden and President Xi. Uh, the, the expectations were very low. The, the hopes for something concrete to come out of this summit were greatly lowered in, in, in advance of the summit. Uh, so the fact that they are talking again, relations between our two countries have been have hit rock bottom. Uh, there have been, since the Pelosi visit in August of 2022, there's been very, very little collaboration, cooperation, even uh, discussion between our, our leaders. So the fact that they're talking, that they had a friendly summit, is not only symbolically significant, but also concretely significant. In the United States, there's been a fear that we're heading toward military confrontation over Taiwan, over the South China Sea. Uh, and any steps away from that are positive steps right now. And they did have a few deliverables from this meeting, and that was positive also. But the fact that we've laid the basis for moving forward together in a friendlier way is very significant. Uh, the but they did not really make much headway on the big issues that divide us. Mm -hmm. Very little headway on Taiwan, very little headway on the U.S. efforts to militarize the Pacific, the division of, of the Pacific into co uh, contradictory blocks right now. So Xi Jinping laid out, he said, we can have two choices. One is for economic development and cooperation a win-win approach to the future, and the other is for confrontation, which bodes very poorly, and it raises the possibility of military confrontation, uh, and nobody wants to go down that path. So they've moved away from that, moved toward friendlier relations and diplomacy, and at least talking, and a bit of cooperation. So I see that as very positive right now. Mm -hmm. uh, well, John, you know, uh, you mentioned about these, some of the deliverables, you know, out of the summit between the two leaders. Uh, and also you see uh, immediate actions basically from both sides, you know, from the Chinese side. Uh, there's uh, basically a report saying that the government is asking some of the drug companies, you know, don't sell materials that could be used uh, to make elite, uh, illegal drugs, basically the fentanyl uh, issue you mentioned. And the U.S. side has lifted uh, economic measures against, I think, is one of the laboratories under the Chinese uh, Ministry of uh, Public Security. Mm -hmm. So you do see, you know, there's a tone which is positive, and then 
you do see at least some uh, the beginning of immediate action following that. Uh, so, what, you know, based on that, what's your expectation? What's your understanding of this? Uh, probably the path forward. Well, let, let me first say a, a few words about the fentanyl issue. Um, you know, fentanyl is a medical compound that is used for uh, making legitimate uh, medical drugs. Uh, but you know, there are people I think in reportedly in Mexico and other parts of the world that are abusing this, uh, turning these compounds into um, you know something that's of. Uh, um, uh, like an opad, uh, you know, for 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 for, for drug use, um, and this is of no fault to China at all. Um, but uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, China's being accused by some politicians in the United States saying that we're producing these drugs, uh, you know, uh, as if we are sort of exporting opium. Uh, that's that's totally ridiculous. But I think the fact that China is uh, making a commitment to help the United States to stamp out, um, you know. Approaches like this in places like Mexico and some other places, um, you know, these are illegal operations. Uh, in itself, I think, is a contribution to America's national interest. As I said, you know, they're just killing people in the United States, and uh, we are doing something to help them. Um, so that's a very good uh, sign, I think, that the two sides are coming together. Now, when it comes to um, you know concrete uh, outcomes out of this meeting, I, I, you know, I do agree that uh, um, you know things like that should not be underestimated. It should not be under uh, underlooked. Uh, these are very significant contributions to the two countries' bilateral relationships. But certainly, you know, I, I, we would hope that there could be more uh, outcomes. The, the the issue is still, you know, I think um, there's some some fundamental differences. Uh, existing, in my view, in the opening statements by the two presidents. Um, Biden was talking about managing competition. Uh, President Xi said that major country comp competition uh, is not the trend of the, the prevailing time. Um, so, so I think uh, you know, there's some dis disagreement over this issue. Um, I, I, I'd like to summarize this with a, with, a, with a quote from Shakespeare, with a little bit of a twist, to compete or not to compete, right? That's the question here. <laughs> um, so, um, but I think it, it's really in the semantics, what kind of Competition. What we're talking about? Um, if we're competing in, you know, high tech stuff, uh, competing in, um, you know, better economic development, I think that's okay. But if we're talking about so-called security competition, uh, geopolitics uh, uh, competition, in the sense of trying to slow China down. This is the kind of a competition that China is vehemently opposed to. So, uh, so I think uh, you know the, the the there's also an issue between uh, an issue of a weighting between competition and cooperation, right? Uh, you know, I think uh, from China's perspective, we would like to have more things in cooperation as opposed to competition. But from the United States perspective, it seems to be you know mostly about competition. Mm -hmm. So I think it's these kind of disagreements that define um, the, um, the 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 future. Uh, of the two countries' relationship. Certainly, I would hope that uh, politicians in Washington uh, would heed China's call that, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it competition in the, in the U.S. sense, in American sense, is, is not really in the interest of both countries, as President, Pre President Xi has already said. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, um, you know, that's, a, that's something for, for them to think about, I think. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ali, this is an interesting question, you know. It's like a different perception or even different philosophy. From the Chinese point of view, it's really about what are the principles of handling this relationship. Are we partners? Are we friends? Or are we, you know, enemies or rivals, etc.? That defines how we conduct our relationship. 
Uh, and also the idea of you know the definition of competition is that zero-sum competition or so-called healthy competition that produce win-win results. Uh, how do you look at the issue here? Well, something has clearly changed over the past 18 to 24 months. Until then, it was just strategic competition with China and nothing else. Pretty zero-sum view from Washington, D.C. It became clear more recently that the dominant theme of U.S. strategic coercion premised on changing China's behavior was getting nowhere. China acquired, it seems to be, increasing comprehensive national power, innovated in science and technology, grew its economy, and expanded influence. Indications showed that China had broken out of the containment parameters and could actually damage its enemies or countries that tried to hurt it. Reality may have dawned on some elite sections that China needed to be not contained, but deterred strategically and engaged cooperatively everywhere else. That shift may have been reflected in U.S. diplomatic change of stance recently, which led to this summit. That would be my view. Get a balanced analysis on both domestic and international topics within the framework of cross-cultural comparisons. This is Dialogue. Well, you see the summit, I mean, uh, so there's a reason for the U.S. to host such a summit or to invite the Chinese side to join the summit there. Uh, so based on what you have said, Dr. Ali, um, and now we have a few, a few deliverables here, and, uh, you know, President Biden has touted like one of the achievement uh, out of his summit meeting with Xi Jinping is like, you know, our relationship is stable now. When he hosted this uh, APEC CEO meeting, I think, you know, he talked about it. now there is a stability. Uh, well, that meets uh, your expectation of countries in between, in, uh, countries in this region and economies in this region. Do uh, so you think the relationship will keep stable for the near future? I call the context, uh, the landscape on which this relationship is operating, um, a period of systemic transitional fluidity. And context is key. Between 1990, uh, roughly when the Soviet Union collapsed, was no longer a great rival superpower to the US, and 2014, when the United States and Russia took certain steps, the United States was, if you like, the sole superpower at the heart of the international security system, a unipolar system. But from 2014 onwards, China certainly has refused to subordinate itself to the systemic primate or the self-proclaimed primate, the United States. And U.S.-initiated strategic competition has driven the international security system in a sort of polarization and block. Uh, sort of two separate blocks. Now, uh, that China has refused to subordinate itself has finally made it clear that competitive tendencies and coercion will not actually change China's behavior. Something else needed to be tried. And I think we have seen that being tried now. It has taken a long time, a lot of effort. But remember that the military forces or the premises tendencies still active in the United States national security establishment are alive and well. So military operations will continue in China's periphery, in the East China Sea, South China Sea, in the Taiwan Strait and thereabouts. That will not change dramatically. I don't expect it'll change dramatically. But over time, 
as relations build elsewhere, particularly in economic cooperation, in commercial, financial cooperation, science and technology, people-to-people -people contacts and so on, trust may deepen enough for other things to calm down as well. It'll take a lot of effort and a lot of time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, following that theme, uh, Peter, you know, uh, President Biden also said that U.S. and China has to, you know, had to ensure that competition between them does not veer into conflict. Uh, you know, he stressed that the importance to manage their relationship responsibly. Uh, what kind of, uh, you know, competition that, that could veer into conflict, uh, Peter? Well, Biden is in a difficult position. He's running for re-election uh, next year. His popularity is low. And the Republicans are just looking for an opportunity to attack him for being weak on China as an example of his being too old and not strong enough as a leader. So on the one hand, he's got to look like he's standing up to China. The recent polling shows that 83% of Americans have a negative view of China. Uh, but most Americans are very tired of war. As Jimmy Carter, former president, said in 2019, the United States, China has not been at war since 1979, while the United States has been at war constantly. So that, that what we have is a sense of war weariness in the United States. People don't want to see more military confrontation. So what we're looking for, what most Americans are looking for, is some kind of healthy kind of competition between the two countries. But there are real differences over Taiwan, uh, over the South China Sea, and the U.S. approach has been to militarize the differences. The U.S. working with South Korea, with Japan, with the Philippines, with Australia, has been militarizing the Pacific. Uh, and so that's created a lot of tension between our two countries. Nancy Pelosi's visit in August of 2022 represented the low point, uh, her visit to Taiwan in, in the summer. So uh, the, the main tension has really been over Taiwan. The U.S. has been increasing its diplomatic relations with Taiwan, increasing its military ties with Taiwan, increasing its uh, sending of arms to Taiwan. And China has been very, very angry about that. Biden and Xi did discuss that at the meeting, but they apparently didn't come to any real conclusion in terms of ways we're going to concretely improve that situation. But we see a world that's at war now. We see the conflict over Ukraine. We see the conflict over Gaza uh, between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and what the last thing we need is another conflict, a militarization of the Pacific at this point. So and, and that's the sense in which I see this as a positive step. You have to remember that just recently, the Congressional Bipartisan Strategic Posture Commission came out with a report saying that the United States is weak right now, that the United States has to be prepared to fight and win a two-front war against Russia and China at the same time. In order to do that, they say that we have to build up our military, 
not only our conventional forces, but our nuclear forces. And this, this report is calling for a dramatic increase in U.S. nuclear forces as well. And so you've got that kind of hawkish mentality uh, behind the scenes in the United States with a lot of influence in Congress. And so Biden is aware of that, and he doesn't want to look weak. He doesn't want to look like he's making concessions to China, but he also realizes how dangerous the path that we've been on is, and he's trying to walk us back a little bit from that. Xi Jinping has said that we need win-win diplomacy. It's not that kind of competition, a win-lose, you know, a zero-sum game competition. He said we need win-win, and I think that's what the Belt and Road Initiative has been about. That's what the BRICS initiatives have been about, and that's what hopefully the APEC meeting can lead to. Mm -hmm. uh, well, John, let's uh, t take a look at, uh, you know, well, it's related, but also uh, the APEC meetings here. Uh, President Xi pointed out in his speech that, uh, you know, the Asia-Pacific region has cut its average tariff rate from 70% to 5% uh, over the past three decades and has contributed to like 70% of the global economic growth. You know, per capita income in the region has more than quadrupled over the past three decades. So of course, you know, all this uh, would not be possible without peace and stability. Absolutely. Frankly, without the cooperation or cooperative relationship between China and the United States. Right. And as he said, you know, well, the U.S. Uh, said, you know, we, we, you know, we don't want to decouple from China's economy. We are uh, de-risking, we are diversifying. Uh, but the thing is, like, the absence of development, as the presidency pointed out, is the biggest risk. For the majority of the economies in this region, I, I think my sense is, like, you know, they are expecting a stable relationship so they can focus on cooperation, focus on investment right. and trade. Yeah, I think what President Xi is talking about is mostly about China. I think, you know, the, the great statistics you just mentioned, probably at least half of it uh, mm -hmm. is associated with China's development. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we were able to do that mostly because, as you said, you know, uh, because of the peace, uh, peaceful environment in this region. We have two wars going on, actually two major wars going on right now, and thankfully the you know, majority, overwhelming majority of the Asian Pacific region is still very peaceful. And I think we should uh, treasure this peace um, as we move forward. Now, the, the issue about um, you know, the security competition stuff that Peter was talking about, the, the, I think the, the major problem is that Washington's um, so-called security architecture for this region um, is essentially, in my view, trying to build something very similar to, uh, to NATO. Uh, I describe it as a quasi-NATO. Uh, as a matter of fact, the United States is trying to drag NATO into the, the Asian-Pacific region, right? And you're talking about Quad, you're talking about uh, AUKUS, you're talking about you know, the, the so-called Indo-Pacific security framework. All these, all these kind of things, according to President Xi, is, is camp-based strategy, camp-based politics. And, and we know what happens when, it, when we do something like this. We know what's, what it's going to lead to. So, so I think you know this is the fundamental difference between Washington's thinking and and Beijing thinking, um, and and President Xi said that uh, you know we're willing to sort of cooperate with the United States. We have no intention of seeking to decouple. I'm sorry to 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 topple the U.S. dominance here to to be number one. I think he almost and I've, according to reports I've said he 
even explicitly mentioned that. So, so I think you know the, 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 this is the major problem we're facing. Uh, and I think um, U.S. strategy vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan is just one piece of that, probably the most important piece of that. And this is something that China cannot tolerate, cannot accept at all. You know, we cannot watch Taiwan to mm. go down the path There's of the independence. Yeah, and, and, yes. the, and, and America's military assistance to Taiwan is essentially um, supporting, encouraging, uh, and bolstering um, Taiwan's movement towards that direction. And this is the where the danger, where the danger lies. And I think yes. this is a red line that China cannot tolerate to see it being crossed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Ali, uh, if you look at this um, economic front, for example, we have this uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework uh, initiated by the U.S. side, uh, which excludes China. Um, but if you look at uh, the countries in the region, you know, like Singapore, the Prime Minister Lee has said that, you know, IPEF should be open uh, to other membership members uh, in the future development. Uh, and China is applying to join the CPTPP, uh, previously known as the you know, Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership. Uh, so China is also joined DEPA, the DEPA, Digital uh, Trade Agreement there. So China is trying to be part of the larger free trade uh, bloc uh, in this region. Well, um, I mean, the U.S. is not really making it public, like they welcome uh, China's participation, for example, in this IPEF. Uh, but other countries like Singapore, they want it to be open and uh, inclusive. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, China is the second largest economy in the world and the largest in the Asia-Pacific region. And to exclude China from any economic gathering or constellation, like the ones you mentioned, uh, reduce their uh, weight, significance and efficacy dramatically. The cost, opportunity cost of not having China in is such an enormous avoidable cost that rational economic thinking would suggest that China ought to be in it. But then one also has to understand that these are more political than economic frameworks as they were originally determined, designed and finally uh, built up. So the members of the CPTPP member countries uh, the ministers uh, who met in San Francisco a few hours ago, and they agreed that uh, they are happy to consider new membership and expand uh, the organization. But this raises the question of what standards they have in terms of labor rights, state subsidy, industrial policy, environmental protection, and there's also the question of intellectual property rights and so on. These have to be homogenized. And China must sort of, if you like, shift and revise its own system so that it is uh, congruent. Its own policies are congruent with what has been accepted as the CPTPP standard. And similarly, all other economic organizations affecting the region in which China is the foremost dominant economic, military, diplomatic power, excluding China makes no sense. But including China would, first of all, reduce those organizations' efficacy as some sort of protection against China and secondly, the political objective of setting up those in the first place would be eroded. So those are considerations that have to be kept in mind. Well, with that, yes. we come to the end for today's show. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. Thank you for being with us. I'm Xu Qinduo. See you next time.